Hey, what's up? Mr. Bill here. This week I have a ton of shit to announce. I am going on tour. It's called the Halftime Tour. Uh, February 22nd, I'm doing Indianapolis. March 12th, Washington. March 13th, Virginia. March 14th, Greensboro. March 19th, Seattle. March 26th, Harrisburg. March 27th, Rochester. March 28th, Cleveland. April 18th, I'm doing Abu Dhabi in Texas. 19th, I'm doing Red Rocks, Colorado. May 29th, I'm playing at the Unce Festival in California. And the 18th of June, I am playing at Sonic Bloom in Colorado. I also have an EP out soon. It's called the Halftime EP. Uh, I also wanted to mention that I have a company called Belegal Sounds that just releases sample packs, and we just put one out by Jonah Hodges. You should go check that out. We've also put out another four or five sample packs, I believe, at this stage that are all pretty damn sick. And as always, rate, comment, and, and subscribe on whichever podcast app you're listening to on. All right, thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. all right we are recording fuck yeah oh great sick all right i'm gonna turn the gain up on these a little bit tight cool man well yeah nice to meet you anthony and matt always good to talk to you about everything no phones bro you can't phone during the podcast (laughs) yep um, cool. So I guess like Matt, it would be like safe to call you a mastering engineer and uh, an acoustician. And Anthony, you're a speaker designer. Yes. Right. Uh, what What other titles would you go by? Uh, improviser and uh, yeah, performer. So musician. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. As well. It's fucking sweet. What instrument? Uh, I design my own modular synthesizers. Oh, cool. And awesome. the interfaces to yeah be able to play on those. What's your properly? modular company? Uh, there is no modular company. I've just been doing it since 2006-ish. Okay. And uh, yeah, eventually someday, I have a feeling that we'll put something out that somebody will want to use. Nice. But awesome. uh, yeah, I've just been prototyping performance interfaces that allow me to move around and patch ecologies and yeah. Is there any place people can find those online at the moment? Um, I'm actually, uh, I've been... S- working at removing myself from the internet okay do you have a flip phone? so there is so there is some material <laughs> i don't have a flip phone okay. um no actually i went the, to uh for the last last year i've had a phone but uh the two years prior to that i did not have a phone at all which was an amazing experience yeah so i date a um a white hat hacker oh. and um she knows a lot of people like that who who don't use social media have flip phones just to try and completely remove themselves from any uh, privacy stuff it was great it was a real head shift when i had to get a phone again and and the speed with which the virtual world starts to take over your your mind Mm -hmm. is it's it we don't realize how strong like how many cycles we're spending every moment on not here like a lot of processing power you mean yeah 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 so bjork says that spending 
I can't remember the exact amount of time. It was either like an hour or half an hour or two hours or however long it was. She was like, this X amount of time spent on social media per day is the equivalent to eating three hamburgers. That was her, <laughs> her analogy of it. But yeah, I agree. I think like I've cut social media out like not for long, like days at a time maybe. Mm-hmm. And I always notice when I do it, I feel a lot better. And I also get shitloads more done. Yep. Yeah. I was in a period where I was writing patents during those two years and it was way easier to focus on those Your on those te- span the, gets way better the technology yeah. and yeah how do you write a patent um well first you need an actual uh novel invention that passes the you know the tests that the patent office uses to determine if something is is unique and, and is a, the patent office like one place or multiple places uh there are so there's a U.S. patent office, and then there's the European patent office, and then there's all the regionals at all in all the countries around the world. And um, yeah, and depending on where you want your coverage of, oh, I invented this, and I I want to claim this, I want to put a fence around it. Um, you then decide where to pursue that, putting that patent mm-hmm. and placing it. Um, so basically, once you've written one, the task there is that it gets translated into the other languages okay, so, that the other um, patent offices require So when you if, say if writing, you're going for an international grant or something. Right. And when you say writing a patent, it's sort of just like a big manual of like what this is. Uh, yeah, actually, patents are interesting. Uh, coming from an open source space myself, uh, patents, at first, I was very opposed to them when I first had some ideas for speaker designs. I thought... I just want to give these to my friends and put deploy these in the field and use them. And I don't care about putting a picket fence around my property, um, which seemed really, uh, it just, it seemed selfish and didn't seem like the right thing to do with innovation. And it's also destructive, I think, to like the growth of an industry because I've I, I found, um, I think partially why tech has gotten so big is because of that exact thing. Like everybody's been so open source about things. And I think the reason production or electronic music didn't get big for the longest time is because people had this attitude of like, no, I have to like guard keep all of my secrets and not share them with people because that's what makes my music me, right? And then as soon as people like me and Tom Cosm and like other people, I think started doing a lot of tutorials online, it's like electronic music slowly has exploded. Mm. And now it's like keeping your secrets is a dumb idea, it seems like. Mm. Yeah, totally. Well, what's interesting about patents is as I became more familiar with what they are doing uh you you actually are not hiding the technology you're disclosing it fully so that someone else can replicate it in words Mm -hmm. so in language you have it's the most specific form of english language that i know uh, claim writing is and basically you have to describe in words very precisely so that someone on a desert island with some tools and some materials who doesn't know you who has no resource to access anyone else who knows anything about it could read this a specification for how this technology works and then read the actual claim structure the the language of it and and put it together themselves mm-hmm. and so in a way it open sources it for anyone that's not doing commercial work so that aspect of patents is um actually feels uh very uh, freeing and libertarian uh, because it allows anyone to do whatever they want with it right um outside of you know, being making a business around it, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, it's anything that's not like illegal, based on you owning the rights to the patent and stuff like that, right? So it's kind of like I'm going to put a fence around this, but I'm going to show the world how to make it, right. and and then I get 17 years or whatever to execute on that technology without other businesses coming in and competing with us on so, that on that same territory. 
so once you like actually release the product right you usually like when people release a piece of hardware they'll release also a manual with that piece of hardware how much of that text from the patent do you think is reusable in the manual almost zero okay unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately so it's like it's sort of like doing all of that work again but in a different style of writing um yeah well a lot of what makes a thing tick is not what a user needs to know to be able to use that thing mm -hmm. and so so yeah the ux design and how the product actually works for someone is a completely different space That's a good um the the technology behind it that makes the magic happen for them is uh you know probably only interesting to someone skilled in the art of the design of such things so um there's a lot of diyers i I came out of the DIY space. That's how I learned to make uh, sound systems. Right. So yeah, the reason why I have you both here is because I thought it would be interesting, as I was saying earlier, that you're a speaker designer, so you make the things that make the sound. And then Matt is an acoustician and a mastering engineer. So he is the guy who makes the rooms in which the sound making things go to sound good. And I think like probably most people listening to this podcast will understand or a lot of people listening to this podcast will understand that one sort of doesn't work well without the other. You know, if you have a really nice sounding room and shitty speakers in it, it's going to sound kind of shitty. Mm -hmm. And if you have a great speaker in a shitty room, it's also going to sound kind of shitty. Um, Maybe even shittier. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good question. Do you, do you think, <laughs> would you preference shitty speakers in a good room or good speakers in a I shitty room? I would prefer shitty speakers in a good room. Um, okay. I've been impressed time and again how good uh you know somewhat mediocre sound systems can be if they you know are in an environment where um the room anomalies are controlled for and they can be the best versions of themselves in most cases the room is the bottleneck for the um transfer function between the speaker and the listener um, I have do you want to give a quick rundown on acoustics and what the basics of that is for people who aren't aware? Um, yeah, so acoustics is basically a very narrow and hyper-specified breadth of physics. We deal exclusively in vibration and only between the duty cycles of 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz, give or take a couple, depending on the range of your speakers. Um in my particular specialization of acoustics, which is small room acoustics, specifically control room acoustics, the biggest thing that we try to do is remove the room from the equation to the best of our abilities um, by controlling the anomalies that are endemic in most rooms, um, of which there's a couple um, types the the big one being modal and the secondary one being boundary interference that's pretty much the whole job when so you what really... is uh, modal interference so okay so every frequency has a wavelength it's the physical space that it takes for that frequency to go from the beginning of a cycle to the end of the cycle from peak to peak from trough to trough <clears throat> so for instance whatever like 50 hertz maybe like five meters or something like that. uh oof i can do feet i can do meters with some things but okay. not wavelengths yet 50 hertz uh oh you're looking at maybe 12 feet i believe maybe a little more so about three meters maybe yeah 
So um, it takes three meters before 50 hertz has finished a yeah. single cycle of itself. Yeah. And this can be thought of as like almost a pressure in the room, right? Yeah, exactly. And the where modes come into play is um, for a given dimension of a room, say your room is, you know, 12 feet wide, uh, that 50 hertz wavelength fits perfectly into that space and it hits the wall right where the uh, waveform starts repeating and it either builds upon itself or it cancels itself. Um, and in doing so, depending on where you are from sidewall to sidewall, the level of that specific frequency will be louder or quieter. And that is a modal anomaly. Um, if you're in the middle of the room, most of the time you're in a, a null position where there's very little of that specific frequency. Um, so that's one of the things that we try to iron out during the process, not only so that the mix position can be neutral and trustable, that you know what you're hearing from the speaker, there is that amount of 50 hertz coming out of it, and it's not being informed by your room lying to you, but also so that there's... Um, a degree of consistency from position to position within the room so that, you know, people sitting on the client couch get more or less the same experience as the person in the mixed position does. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's basically the rub of, of, uh, room modes. Where do you typically position your, uh, like, let's say that we have a room and we don't have good treatment in mm -hmm. it. Um, what would be an optimal position in, in a room without treatment, uh, to experience the base at a level where it's not building up and giving you, you know, assuming, double the energy or half the energy. Assuming there's no uh, treatment. Yeah. Um, there are rules of thumb that we begin with. Um, there are a lot of moving parts in a small room that will screw this up immediately. But um, one of the starting points that I like to use is to have the mixed position roughly 37.5% of the way from the front wall to the back wall. Is there any reason why that yeah, works? Yeah, totally. So at 50%, you're in a um, modal uh, node, which is a suck out. It's where there's the minimum amount of pressure. Why, um, would, why would that be the middle of the room? Uh, because it's where... The waveform meets with the perfect inverse of itself, more or less. So it is, is that not dependent on where the speakers are? Uh, to a degree, yeah. It can be, it can be shifted slightly from that, but in general, posting up in the middle of any dimension, honestly, puts you at a disadvantage. Um, whereas if you sit yourself in the twenty-five percent point you're in an anti-node where there's um, constructive interference happening, which will make the signal louder than it really is. So you split the difference between the two, 37.5%. Okay. So that's sure. kind of why you put yourself there is because it's between a node and an anti-node. Mm -hmm. And these waves are really long yep. in the base. And so where the speakers are position-wise, you could move them a couple feet, but it really wouldn't matter because we're talking about the resonance of the, right. of the, the room the, itself. You haven't moved the walls and therefore Precisely. it's not fixing anything. Yeah, there are much... You're still putting pressure into a room with the same wall distances and stuff like that. There are much better motivating factors for choosing the speaker position than trying to shift the nodes and anti-nodes of uh, you know, that particular dimension. 
Um, so in that case, like you just get yourself 37 and a half percent into a room and then it's a good place to start. And then you you're know. just trying to like really mess around with distances yep. between the left and right wall. And yep. Well, that's, uh, that's one of the things you're kind of stuck being 50% of the way between your side walls, because if you orient yourself off center in the width of the room, uh, you set yourself up for imaging disparities because of the, um, how close you are to one boundary versus the other one. And that can make for weird things, not only in the perception of the imaging, but also in the frequency response, because obviously one speaker is uh, going to be influenced um, differently by that width mode than the other one because of their differences in position. So if you want uniformity between your left and right speaker, which is one of the paramount goals in acoustics, um, well, yeah, I mean, the whole basis of stereo, right? Yeah. You have of, no center image, you, yeah. your width collapses. If, if the signal from your left speaker and your right speaker isn't roughly the, the same frequency response. And that's why a lot of these speaker manufacturers go to such great lengths in QC to hand match their drivers is to overcome that because it gives you superior imaging as a result. Right. Cool. Um, so having a symmetric room is a really good idea, absolutely. at least at least from the, the left to right standpoint. Yeah. yeah. Now, an interesting thing is in a lot of rooms, um, even if you do put yourself at, say, 37.5% from the front wall and 50% of the way between the side walls, you'll still get a lopsided image. And like I said, there's a lot of moving parts in small room acoustics. And one of the big ones is variance in wall construction. In Bill's room that I just finished doing, the 37.5% point didn't work out. And the reason for that is because the majority of his front wall is a window. So that is a boundary that behaves very differently than his rear wall. And in doing so, that shifts the node and anti-node uh, distribution for the room. So how, how does a window work in acoustics? I don't know the exact cutoff frequencies and I don't want to put my foot in my So my, mouth, my understanding there of there is a cutoff point below which it is no longer a boundary. The sound okay. freely goes through it. It's tied to quarter wave theory basically. Okay. Um you know it, Wait, and quarter wave theory is what? Yeah so quarter wave theory is kind of like the Ohm's law of acoustics, I guess, or uh, F equals MA of acoustics or what it's, it's one of the fundamental binding laws of acoustics that a lot of other things are derived from. Um, and that is, uh, many fold, one of which is to trap a given frequency very effectively, um, approaching comprehensively that trap depth must be at minimum uh, a quarter of the wavelength of that frequency so if you're trying to trap a 50 hertz wave uh you're gonna need a like, four foot trap yeah three feet i think something right. to that effect yeah well. now this is something of a generality and it's not to say that you can't take a good chunk out of 50 hertz without three feet deep of trapping but um, in order to comprehensively trap it, that's what you need. Another extension of quarter wave theory is that in order for a sound to um, see something as a boundary and not just diffract around it, uh, the 
the smallest dimension of whatever that thing is that the sound is hitting has to be at minimum a quarter of the wavelength of that frequency. If it's a lower frequency, it just curves right around it. And I believe uh, your in-speaker design baffle step thresholds are beholden to that as well. Isn't that a... Mm-hmm. Are they connected in that regard? Yeah, baffle step is yeah. connected so to that. I'm curious, um, yeah. and this might be like tangenting off too far from like room acoustics <laughs> too quickly, but we can always circle back yeah, sure. if we need to. But I'm curious, like how much of this like acoustics stuff um, is relevant in speaker design? And also if you want to introduce like your company slash what you do slash the sort of uh, speaker design that you're doing. And I'll let you talk about mm. as much of that as you're comfortable with sharing because I know that there's some... Uh, IP stuff you want to keep under wraps for the moment. So sure, I'll just sure. let you share what you're comfortable with there sure. and we can talk based off that. Yeah. Um, well, in, in speaker design, um, there's a bunch of different approaches that you can take to uh, not inter- interact with the room. And uh, those are based on uh, geometry, essentially, like the geometry of the speaker enclosure, the geometry of how the drivers sit on the enclosure um so the actual shape of the speaker basically the, the shape of the the speaker enclosure yeah like and the in, inside of the speaker and also the the front baffle face of the speaker and that's what is in a lot of um hi-fi and mastering systems uh you'll find that the as you get to smaller like the mid-range and the treble drivers you'll find that the baffle is narrowed intentionally uh so that it is no longer so that the you aren't getting reflections off of that area um that like are a, within a quarter wavelength because the frequencies are very small mm-hmm. all right okay yeah oh, so you're saying like as soon as the speak uh the sound leaves the speaker it's not instantly reflecting off the panel exactly and yeah. because those reflections and the, and the diffraction at the edges of that panel are causing cancellations and changing the response interesting I, I also a different depths in the in the stereo field waveguides provide a secondary means of addressing that too right right yeah. totally and so that's that's where waveguides waveguides essentially what waveguides are yeah well so waveguides are on which one of us is talking it's a completely different concept okay (laughs) um yeah so we'll see if you agree with us uh waveguides are constrainment devices they're geometries that uh keep the waves uh maintaining a a certain distribution Mm -hmm. in space so if you take pi uh 360 degrees and you slice it into say 60 degrees of pi and then you say this is the this is the angle that we want to uh, cover with this sound at these wavelengths. Then we could design a waveguide that would help maintain that uh, maintain that coverage and not allow the sound to go to exit outside of that sixty degree space. And it's essentially like a, dispersion patterns. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's like a physical part of the speaker design, and it's sort of like. Would you say it's just a part of the front baffle almost? Well, yeah. mm-hmm. and so I'll go for it. Your tweeters have uh, waveguides. That's why they're uh, set into the cabinet very slightly. That's by design to uh, influence the dispersion patterns of the speakers. Hmm. So say for people listening, who I imagine like a great deal of them are probably using either headphones or KRKs or Atom A7Xs. What are the waveguides on those kind of things look like? On the on the A7Xs, you have uh, the tweeter that's it's, that's it's yeah it's actually a air motion transformer uh, AMT design which is like a, it's like the inside of a frog's throat mm-hmm. is where that design came from and it's um it's kind of a bellows where it's like um 
curtain. It's like a um, pleat. It's a pleated structure. Corrugated. It's pleated, and so it and so it compresses and expands. The pleats do, and and that causes four times more air to move than if it was a flat a flat surface. So that that and, would be the waveguide. And the so ribbon. that's well, that's partially a waveguide. Because I always thought the ribbon bit was not the waveguide. I thought it was the tw- the actual driver. Right, that is the driver, but it has it has these little surfaces on it that don't those don't actually count that much for as a waveguide because the ribbon size the size of those is above twenty kilohertz. So quarter wave theory again, so, right? So, but but those are inset just slightly mm-hmm. um, in the cabinet, and and based on the size and whatnot, there's a little bit of a waveguide function to the atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not terribly effective if we look at something like the jbl ls uh 305 308 those have a, a more traditional waveguide design which kind of yeah. looks like a horn right yeah and so and but it's still that still is technically a waveguide um a, a horn in in speaker design typically a horn is something where um you're trapping enough air in front of the uh, the driver, the pistonic system, that you are able to to then change the transfer characteristic, the impedance tr- uh, transfer between the electrical energy, the physical driver surface moving, and the air itself that wants to get out of the way but is trapped in the horn. Mm-hmm. And because it's trapped there, you can transfer more energy into it, and so uh, that makes it more efficient. And speakers are typically very inefficient. Uh, that's why horns were a really, and still are to some degree, a big deal. Um, starting in the, you know, with uh, reggae and dubstep, or I'm sorry, dub music, mm-hmm. um, with backloaded scoops and and things like that in Jamaica, um, and then also like Klipsch K horn style things in disco in new york city so jamaica had like a lot to do with speaker improvements uh it what they were adopting speaker wise to amplify the kind of music they wanted to listen to was was driving uh in designers to uh improve both the driver technology and also the uh the horn loading technology and when we talk about horn loading really we're just talking about geometry um, we're talking about geometries of constrainment of energy. So, can we make a tube or a or an expanding tube or you know a funnel that can hold uh, energy in it? And quarter wavelength theory applies to this. Uh, so, these tubes or these uh, these horns, they need to be uh, a quarter wavelength of the waves that you're trying to get to couple to air more efficiently. So you're trying to again produce like a 50 hertz wave the the speaker driver itself has to be three feet in uh more like 12 12 feet yeah oh right so i've actually heard about um it might have been pk doing this where inside the speaker they have a cone that like snails up so before the waveform has actually left the speaker it's already traveled like 20 feet or something like that sure and in in when you want high uh, high power transmission of low base waves where, where you can get the maximum efficiency horns are very good at that the problem is is that they're huge um so they take up a lot of physical volume physical space and so you're moving probably through, like quite heavy too right yeah 300 400 pound cabinets right 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 and and those pathways um also they have two problems uh particularly one of them is that the the path length because it's so long the upper frequencies that can be reproduced accurately uh get smeared they go to hell 
because you don't have uh, you have all these resonances, these higher mode resonances that happen in those upper frequencies. And just like in we were talking about room acoustics happens within the enclosures of speakers as well. Yeah, right. And so so it's a it's a resonant system. But those higher wavelengths, the higher frequency ones like mid bass are suddenly they're echoing around in there. Mm-hmm. And so now the now the speaker doesn't work to a higher to those into the mid bass, and it only works for lower frequencies. So that's one of the one of the detriments of horns is that they're very narrow bandwidth uh, systems. So true horn systems from top to bottom require maybe four horns because each horn is only handling two octaves at most. You're lucky if you get two. Mm-hmm. So typically. That's that's how it's been in the industry for um, eighty years, ninety years. Like, and this is like obviously why in small speaker design, like monitors and stuff, you have like different drivers for different band ranges, and in large sound system design, you just literally have different boxes to produce different frequencies, and then use like a splitter, right? Like a frequency splitter of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, referred to as a crossover. Right, right. Yeah. So, and- do your does your speaker design implement this in that way? Like, you have a horn, and then you have like these other types of drivers uh, it depends on which piece of the technology uh that we've developed uh we're talking about but yes we do use we use cro- like most speaker designs presently we use crossovers um something interesting that that i can bring to this conversation is that uh we've adopted approach of uh doing physical crossovers in our technology so we tune the geometry the physics of the geometry to sculpt the bandwidth to sculpt the frequency response so that it is so that it gives the the frequencies that we want and cancels the ones that we don't because i believe that on a on a primary level that if we can do that early first in the chain essentially that that then when we apply our crossovers uh to the to the bandwidth that we don't want so this is like that, like physical phase inversion happening before you even apply any digital crossover exactly. stuff. Exactly. Oh, exactly. So it's it's an approach of actually tuning the geometry of the of the thing that's housing the speaker to cancel the frequencies that you don't want and to mitigate the frequencies that you don't want and to reinforce the frequencies that you do and naturally that there you want that to work in a way where you're not messing up the phase, which is also a whole Back of, yeah, the can of so, I, yeah. so I imagine <laughs> this just takes like hyper specific like angling of drivers in certain ways and stuff like that or, or even or port length it's more about yeah it's more about path lengths mm-hmm. and about widths and about expansion rates there's something called the salmon t ratio mm-hmm. um and 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 so when you talk about horns you talk about how fast they expand mm-hmm. so you can go from a you know quarter wavelength theory says oh you can take a tube and create a plane wave pressure structure in there that has resonant nodes and anti-nodes like we were talking about earlier um and if you start opening the horn up uh the tube up into a horn so that it's expanding at a certain rate like an exponential might be around a 0.8 i think uh salmon t ratio uh so you have what looks like now looking more like a snail shell or something like that where the the curve is opening quickly It, it starts slow and it's and and then as it gets to the end, it it just rockets outwards. And depending on how you sculpt that curve, it will shape the the impedance properties. The that's uh, let's go less technical. It will shape the 
energy transfer characteristic in the bandwidth. So if you open it too fast, you'll lose your loading. Loading being like how efficiently the energy is transferred. So if you open if you open a horn too quickly, it it no longer will load those low frequencies strongly. If you open it too slowly, it will load the low frequencies really well, but your bandwidth will go to hell. And you won't the higher frequencies won't come through. Or they will come through, but they'll be completely the phase will be completely screwed up on them. Typically they'll self-filter is what happens. Um, so this this whole space actually is what got me thinking about speaker design. Um, and because cabinets are really large, the, and it's nice to have... Okay, so let's go into efficiency really quick. Um, so speakers, like a typical bass reflex box, like a like an Atom, the, the low driver on that, um, is, I believe, about 1% efficient. So for the energy that you put into that, that your amplifier is putting into that speaker, 98 to 99% of it comes out as heat on the voice coil and is lost and it's just gone. And 1% of it actually moves into the air. That's a really bad transfer function. That's, that's well, it's so, just like bad for like using too much energy, right? It's, yeah, it's using too it's much energy. Yeah. And, and because it's inefficient, when you turn it up, what's happening is that you're, THD. yeah, you're pushing your harmonic distortion up. <laughs> okay. And so, so it's like the net gain from being more efficient in this way of uh, using less power to drive more air out of a speaker is just to more SPL, lower distortion figures. Okay. Right. That's and that's why you would want to use a horn. Makes but at the sense. same time, now you've sacrificed. You have this huge too. box, yeah. and yeah. So yeah. So you're trading. You're trading off these variables to Everything to get these is different a compromise in acoustics, and I think it probably is in loudspeaker design as well. There's yeah. no free lunch. It no. seems like almost room acoustics and speaker design. Oh, they're very, very, very similar things. It's it, they're two two sides of the same coin. It almost, really, yeah. It almost seems like um, where you will think about uh, box design and stuff like that. <laughs> the room is the box. The room is the in box. Acoustics, and yeah. essentially, if you're this in is an enclosure, <laughs> yeah. And if you were in an ideal world, you would just design the box to be exactly how you want. And it. here's a really interesting thing: a lot of guys who are really on the sound quality tip um, are all about open enclosure design because uh, they say it yields the most pristine results because you're you're not subject to you know modalities within the enclosure wait what is an open enclosure it's where it's an open box the the driver faces out of the front of it and then the back of the cabinets just open to the air um, people make dipole subs with them where one driver faces forward and the other one faces backwards but they're both so this open. is an interesting thing that i've heard about with the drivers facing mm -hmm. opposite ways you wire one backwards right yeah so one's out yeah, of you phase. invert the phase right. on one of them so that they express in the same direction at the same time and don't cancel each other out but a lot of people who are big into them say it's the most pristine way to get bass reproduction because of that lack of modal influence and cabinet resonance and yada 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 it's horribly inefficient but now there's a direct uh complement to that in room acoustics i always say the room is the worst part of the room like if we didn't have walls Acoustics would be so easy. Like the walls ruin everything for a sound system. The best, you know, environment for playback 
is um like outside of yeah the field. outside <laughs> in a field and if you could get up off the ground so much the better but again you're not loading the speakers efficiently you have to drive a lot more power into them and it's the same deal with these open box dipole subwoofers they're horribly inefficient you have to drive a ton of power to them to get the same spl you would out of a sealed box or especially a ported box sub enclosure so yeah there's a lot of like commonalities and and whatnot between acoustics and loudspeaker design I feel like feel free to correct me if I butchered anything on your end of that. <laughs> no, open baffle speakers are really inefficient. That's yeah, absolutely right. And and they I think one of the reasons that people go for those uh, in audiophile and reproduction space is that they also tend to not energize the room in the same way mm-hmm. because the back wave is being emitted into the room equally. So it takes a lot more energy to get the room to 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 do, to dance to do to the thing the room properly yeah but the but what's but you aren't relying on the room modes get broken up to some degree because of the reverse the waves being yeah. emitted yeah so that's an it's those are it's a very esoteric arm of speaker <laughs> implementation it's kind of a defeatist arm of speaker implementation honestly like oh you know the enclosures are inherently flawed let's just get rid of the enclosure <laughs> and then you're like okay so the, then you're like the speaker is inherently flawed and now and now we're having to dump four times more power into the speaker I need system eight times as many drivers and amps now but and, and, yeah exactly so wait, why why do you need way more drivers and amps to do an open enclosure because they're horribly inefficient you don't get mm. near the same SPL with the same amount of wattage. Is that because so it? much of the power gets lost out the yeah. back? Like it's, it, well, it's cancel. It's self canceling. Yeah. Okay. So b- the reason that we have speakers on boxes is is because the back wave is is uh, acoustically the same. It's um, the length of it is such that it radiates. Okay. How do we? You do want this? to drive the sound hemispherically towards the listener. That's the you know, primary motivating factor for a front baffle and for a closed back enclosure is so that all of that sound is being more or less projected towards you, at least above uh, the baffle step for the freak uh, for the the speaker's design. Why well, would I would add some data to that? Yeah, I, sure. I think that it's it's primarily about uh, nulling out. When, so you have a, a, a sound waves are moving forwards and backwards. They're they're compression rarefaction, rarefaction like so. When sound waves are emitted, uh, if the wavelength of those waves is long, which bass waves are, then, and and you don't have something to capture the 180 degrees out of phase portion of that wave, then then it will be self-canceling. So these open baffle systems are require, like you were saying, eight drivers as opposed to one, uh, for for example, and. And the drivers have to need to be much larger yep. because they're self-canceling. So they're actually eliminating their own base as they're performing. Uh, the advantages, though, are that they don't... Lack of coloration. Mm-hmm, don't load the room up. But some of the downsides are that you have more uh, distortion, potentially depending on how, how loud they need them, yeah. to be driven. Yeah. Right. So what do you think, the, in your opinion, is the best loudspeaker design out there currently? Um... Okay. For what for what purpose would be my the first good response? Uh, well, let, let's say um, well, let's uh, like say two separate questions. I suppose your favorite like room 
uh, loudspeakers, like for instance, a small room like this one. A listening. Uh, yeah, like a control room. Listening. And then let's say uh, like a, an outdoor festival setting and then let's say a club setting. Interesting. Hmm. And um, I mean, maybe completely dependent on the room of the club and the room of the control room, but of sure. that's also a fine. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> but like, yeah. let's say your ideal club Supposing setting. You could design the space around the needs yeah. of the speaker. Which do you think say. would, yeah, let's say like, which would you think would be the most efficient for loading the room full of energy and, hmm. and what are the caveats to it? Mm, yeah. Personally, exactly. I enjoy, I mean, the, there's yeah there's so many different topologies that have people when i say topology i mean like a geometry for can canceling the back wave and keeping the front wave in the room and and so and making sure the driver does can do what it's supposed to do efficiently um so uh, personally i prefer sealed boxes overported like that's just a starting point uh typically um and the reason is is i don't want to listen to the back wave hash uh, the back wave hash yeah what is that I, that's well that's my way of that's that's what i refer to the out of phase information that's coming off the driver that is then being emitted slightly out of phase into the room uh so like a base reflex cabinet is a cabinet that has a hole in it and it's and the hole is a tuned port that is constraining some of the energy inside the cabinet so the cabinet resonates and that's all good and well, just like the room. So a room has room gain uh, and and a cabinet has cabinet gain. And in that in that space, uh, we can tune it for a particular frequency that uh, the speaker is not good at emitting. So we can take the we can take low base and we can tune the port on the speaker and the cabinet of the, the interior of the cabinet to be resonant below what the speaker is normally good at playing to and then it will fill out that the lower octave range and so, so like but small... to me that's back wave hash and right. so a lot of pa okay. systems employ like especially monitors on sticks uh have their base reflex designs and those give you an extra 3 db of output over a sealed cab better low end extension as well and better low end yeah, yeah. so that's 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 a bonus. The downside is is that phasing coherence. Yeah, and so now that you have the phasing coherence happening, and also you have some upper harmonic hash. This is why there's dampening mm -hmm. in the in the speaker cabinet. So just like room acoustics, where you hang clouds and put absorption material around, uh, in this inside the speaker cabinet, there's typically a bunch of dampening material to 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 grab the energy and cancel it out above, and that's typically for frequencies that you don't want to hear. It, they, that doesn't work perfectly and some of that frequency spectra escapes from the speaker port and 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 it muddies up the response so it's that's not uh not my preferred design if you will um in acoustics it's so easy to talk about all the things you don't like right. as opposed <laughs> to the things you do because there's so many things done wrong but they're done wrong for a good reason to get back to your original question um so for in a studio i prefer a sealed box um for for my low mids and my bass so for instance the the mm27s uh which i have hmm. would you class those as a sealed box because i pulled them apart the other day and they were full of like treatment basically so they're full of treatment and that's to knock down the that the resonances, big, cabinet the, resonances mm -hmm. yeah. yeah but it is a sealed box i mean yeah, apparently it is, it is. yeah <laughs> i just i just like looked behind them to make sure they certainly are yeah so 
the another place that that back wave hash energy can come can come through is through the cone itself mm-hmm. and so the geometry of the of the speaker cabinet itself and how it is shaped inside determines what different frequencies it resonates at and some of that energy will out of phase travel right back through the cone mm-hmm. and and you know just a little bit out of time out of phase so the dampening in a sealed box is really important um and also the driver the surface material of the driver what it's made out of how much of that those frequencies it rejects allowing transit is important um so in the other scenarios where you were talking about in a say a club pa system um in that situation a sealed box may not be practical because it's not loud enough you're throwing away half your energy so to the to the, the back wave is just being captured and it's being turned into heat essentially it's just it's gone so um what is so what you can do to compensate is you can use a waveguide or a horn um typically a horn and raise your efficiency dramatically um so we can go from say one percent with our uh with our standard driver without a waveguide on a box we can go to say five to ten percent with a horn or yeah with a horn um waveguides won't give you quite that loading but the by doing that now our amplifier doesn't have to be cranked it doesn't have to be running in the red and like that that the amp the amp like redlining and being pushed to its maximum is asking for distortion now the speaker doesn't have to move as much because it has a more efficient transit to the air really it's the speakers of the gorilla in the room like they are they produce so much distortion like when we talk about different things in the chain causing distortion a uh, speakers trump everything <laughs> by a long shot. They're they're yeah. Your your DAC is not the issue. It's, <laughs> so I, I have a question about distortion, um, especially from a DJing perspective. So I ask on my rider now to have a complete digital run up on the CDJs and the mixer. Um, and this is because I read from an engineer on a Pioneer forum that if you have everything digitally ran on the Pioneer mixer and CDJs that the clip light literally won't come on no matter how reds how many reds you're running mm. it's just impossible to clip it at the mixer stage um so the only way it could clip in in that at that point right would then either be at the amp if the sound guy has you know because technically you could have one green light on the mixer and have the amp clipping right sure it would be so. the d to a converters that feed the amp from the front of house board that would right do it. right but you're saying like all of that would then be just trumped by the speaker distorting anyway well you yeah okay can i yeah okay thank you um so okay the harmonic series that comes off of a speaker generally starts the second order and then graduates to third and so on and so forth into higher orders of distortion um second and third are actually really consonant because they um uh in terms of music theory correspond to the octave up from the fundamental and an octave and a fifth up, which are the two most consonant intervals yeah, in like Western music power theory. Chord. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so those are actually really pleasant. They add a sense of fullness to the signal. Um, whereas if you clip in digital, uh, in a digital to analog conversion or an analog to digital conversion, what you're adding is odd order harmonic distortion uh, series, which um, if any of the people listening are into additive synthesis, that's a square wave, right? That is a much less uh, pleasant and transparent form of distortion. 
um, which is more readily appreciable. I mean, neither one is optimal if you're going for like a transparent playback, but, um, you know, some are worse than others. And I think digital clipping is probably the worst of the bunch. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. Digital clipping is probably going to trump your, your speaker distortion. Yep. Yeah. But almost no question about that. It's so for sound guys, they should just be running their amps like to not clip <laughs> if you're running two to multiple. Yeah. In a perfect words. world. <laughs> and, um, as someone who I guess is now a live sound engineer, uh, about the digital run thing, that's a fantastic practice to be in because some of these digital boards that we use in live sound, the preamps, A, do not clip gracefully, and B, they start to drive well below full scale. And a lot of uh, sound engineers, I've met live sound engineers, aren't really aware of that. Um, I just did... Um, I just ran sound at a pretty big venue, um, where there, there wasn't enough, uh, headroom cooked into the gain staging to the amplifiers to get us up to a working level without bringing the channel levels up on the front of house board above negative 15. And on the particular board we were using, that's kind of the breaking point beyond which the signal starts going to shit. So if we hadn't had access to that digital run, if we were beholden to the A to D stage on that console, we would have either had to choose between a very quiet show or a very lousy sounding show. So kudos you for demanding full digital runs because I think it's the only way it still doesn't happen. Like the last two or three shows I've played, even though I like ask for digital on my rider. Uh, I do uh, some, like I play dubstep. So uh, there's a thing in dubstep called doubles. And <laughs> it's literally like, it's so funny. Basically like in the production world in dubstep, we'll spend like so long juicing like every little bit of gain out of the limiter and like with disregard for distortion even, like we'll go mm-hmm. up to like negative six, negative five, sometimes negative four and beyond luffs, which is just ridiculous. And then will be like you know i'd be sick playing two drops at the same time over one another <laughs> and as soon as i do my first one in my set almost every time the clip light goes off and that clip light should not turn on if it's all run digitally it's like um this engineer on the pioneer forum said literally if everything's plugged in digitally uh you should not actually get like any that clip light should just not come on at all basically hmm Floating point environments, I suspect. Yeah. So do you think like what's going on there is when it goes in via digital, it's just in real time getting converted to 32-bit floating point? And then- yeah. Yeah. It, it it gets put in a 32-bit float shell. And I am assuming that that is carried through the digital transmission to the Pioneer mixer. My thing that I wonder is, uh, does that end at the Pioneer mixer? Like supposing you clip on the way out of the Pioneer mixer on your master faders, is that being truncated, you know? Like from the mixer? Yeah, it's a good question, which I think I probably should dig into in my copious spare time because I'm not sure if these front of house mixers have the ability to take in a floating point digital signal. I would assume probably not. (laughs) So that begs the question of if you're clipping on your mixer, are you really safe? I mean, you're safe at the mixer, which is what. Are you though? I would assume that what they've done is they've built in x bits. x bits of headroom yeah, and, into, and they've pulled it point. pulled it down. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah, that's so two and then reds they, doesn't actually equal clip. So maybe so. if you hit the plus nine, then you're at full scale. Well, that's the other thing, right? Is is like 
the resolution and like what reds actually mean on the mixer is all like it's really nebulous huh yeah it's like two two greens could be clipping on the well, mixer if a guy at pioneer decided that that's where clipping was well they understand the implications of the red leds in the dj world you know right. you need to be like threshold red in order to be headlining but here's the annoying thing is everybody sees red as bad in the audio world which it generally means bad, but like... Depends on what you're going for. For sure. And like, I don't know, for me, it's not bad until I can hear that it's bad. Sure. And 99% of the time in clubs when I'm in the red, I can't hear yeah, that it's bad. It's a problem you see, but don't hear yeah, exactly. as much. Yeah, mm. I could turn it down and yep. it just actually sounds worse because it's quieter. Sometimes mm. that's due to the resolution of the speaker system totally. and not because not because it isn't sounding worse. It's just that the speaker system isn't reproducing those transients because and of the, the, the way it's... Well, there's yeah. so much masking from people talking. Yeah. I mean, like if you get a thousand people in a club yelling to each other, like in each other's ears mm -hmm. you're generating like 100 db of ambient noise that you're trying to fight over with the sound system which it sounds like oh you're just trying to fight over people talking but they like collectively are making a lot of noise that you're trying to fight over like if you ever have had a system cut out in the middle of a show which i have um it, it's not it doesn't get that much quieter <laughs> like you still hear everyone yelling <laughs> mm. Temporal masking plays a role as well in the reverb time of the room. Exactly. That'll cover a lot of warts up. So if you think about the way Dither works, right, it's yeah. like to mask quantization distortion with just basically noise, noise yeah. um, to bring it up to sort of the level at which like any of those quantization errors may be jumping over. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what the crowd acts like <laughs> in terms of low level distortion at sure. a show. Yeah. They're like live dithering. You could put it that way. Should just build that into a plugin and throw it on every dubstep master. Crowd noise? Yeah, yeah, they've been doing that since like 1991 <laughs> in UK hardcore. <laughs> so in, yeah, so in clubs, speaking of the reverberant nature of the spaces, uh, waveguides and horns, again, are really useful for mm -hmm. cutting down the reflection. So what are some good uh, speaker designs or companies that are making speakers with those particular designs? Um, so naturally you have Function, you have Danley, you have Void. You have uh, some of the community boxes. Um, yeah, there's a few others. I don't want to leave anybody out because, you know. Hennessy? Yeah, you've got Hennessy. Thank you. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and all of these, uh, would you say, are almost um, like, is it, are you able to get like a Danley sounding as good as a function, as good as a Hennessy, et cetera? Uh, well, they have, diff they're, they are all different approaches. So the, the way that, um, the way the waveguides are shaped and what kind of drivers sit behind the waveguides behind these horns? Uh, those also play a huge role in what you're what you actually hear. Box volume too, yeah, um, yeah, to, to, some to some degree, but it's but yeah, mostly mostly it's mostly you're listening to the driver selection and the geometrical shape of the of the uh, horn. Um, horns, yeah, you have stand just like in a room where you have peaks and nulls, you have standing waves and horns, um, and some of those standing waves are in the bandwidth uh, that you want to listen to. And so the geometry of that, of the horn matters a lot and, and really changes the, the results of what you hear. Um, and also the, the sort of loading characteristics, the power response of, of, of the horn, uh, in its bandwidth can change a lot about how the sound is perceived. So like with a, for instance, with a Danley box, you can have a really flat frequency response. Um, that doesn't feel terribly kinetic, um, where you can have a, uh, a fairly flat tuned flat frequency response out of a function rig that feels kinetic. 
And, and when you say feel kinetic, what do you mean? Uh, if you've like in the low mids, if you've ever felt like you're getting tapped on the face. <laughs> okay. Um, I've definitely felt like I've been getting like sort of hit in the stomach <laughs> very lightly. Those, well, those are, yeah. And the, the stomach region, that's more like the like 80 base. Hertz yep. kind of territory. The, the, the tap on the, the face of, is more like 400 Hertz. We're talking You mean more. like the windy feeling? Not windy, like like the actual the upper transient uh, terrain of um, like uh, congos or bongos, like that. The there's like these four hundred, this sort of four hundred hertz, two hundred to four hundred range um, area that you can feel a a kinetic transfer. What's the causality of that? Is it the resonant frequency of your noggin? Is that is it in that range? Is that maybe? I wonder. Why it's focused in that portion of your body that you feel that? I wonder, yeah. I mean, we surely have it's a resonant like, frequency of our yeah, right. cranium. And you're thinking like the resonant frequency of your stomach is just like... Oh, 80 true. hertz. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, not uh, range. As a matter yeah. of fact, yeah. Um, uh, in, in an average size control room, after the second person who's in that room, each additional person will absorb half a dB at 100 hertz. Oh, okay. So that's because we act as uh, pseudo Helmholtz resonators at 100 hertz because of our, you know, construction, <laughs> our inner meat. <laughs> yeah, this is a, you probably both know the answer to this, but if you blew a human up with like an air pump, uh-huh. do you know what shape you would take? Oh, God, no. No. Apparently a donut. Cool. Yeah. Dig it. Because you have the tube going from your mouth to, oh, to your bunghole. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning a lot tonight. This is good. That's my addition to this extremely I, complex I really conversation. It. <laughs> um, I, okay, so I have a question for both of you. Like, <laughs> if you're uh, like, what what advice would you both give? I guess to um, a like sound people setting up like a sound system in a room and also probably more relevant is producers setting up speakers in their bedroom like what would be the what would be like the priority list you think for those two kinds of people probably live sound people are a little bit less relevant in this podcast because i mean there's not as many of those as there are producers there's more fucking producers than people on the planet at this point (laughs) but like um like list of relevancy like priorities Mm -hmm top to bottom like what would you say is the most relevant thing to do with loudspeakers in your room we're talking small room acoustics yeah i think that's probably like the main set of people listening to this um so first and foremost uh this is something that quite often we have no control over in standard circumstances but the thing that has more power to make or break the viability of a listening room's neutrality is the physical dimensions of the space um the ratio between your length, your width, your height, um, there are known good ratios which create uh, distribution patterns that are non-interactive between the different dimensions. So say you have a fundamental mode of 60 hertz in your width. Well, you sure as hell don't want to have a fundamental mode of 60 hertz in your length and especially your height as well. So, so you a, don't want the same dimension. So a cube would be the worst. That yes. is an absolute worst case scenario room, which is just completely unviable. Um, also, you don't want a 10-foot wide room and a 20-foot long room because the there's an overtone series to these modes. So your second order um, 
uh, width mode or your second order length mode will coincide with the fundamental width mode in that case. And you'll still have a compounded magnitude of anomaly. Um, whereas if they, the modes of those uh, particular dimensions didn't interact with each other, if they weren't in close proximity with each other, you'd see much lower magnitude anomalies, which is kind of the name of the game. So my first suggestion is get a room with a good um dimensional ratio and would a series like say 11 by 12 by 13 be good or bad Um, or is it really hard to tell without just doing calculations so there's there's minimum threshold volumes uh that you want to deal with in rooms mainly because you know like i said uh 50 is too much 25 is too little you want to be in between well if you're in a 10 foot long room that's a matter of like a, a foot or two, you know? So your sweet spot is inherently going to be compromised if you move even just so slightly. It's such a volatile environment. That's one of the reasons why people say big rooms behave better is because you've got a lot more wiggle room to mess around with stuff. Right. It's not so, that they behave better. So it's just I, the scale of yeah, which absolutely. you can be in while you, it sounds good as you've larger. Got, you've got a bigger target to hit with good spots. Um so when you said 10 by 11 by 12 or 11 by or 12 by 13. Like a plus one series, basically. So 11, 12, it, 13. It depends. It depends. Um, down in numbers that low? Yeah, probably. But that's like right on the cusp of where I'd be like, oof, you're going to have problems with this room. I've gotten good results out of like, um, oh, 10 by 12 by eight rooms, but it's really hit or miss. You you kind of, to some extent, need to hope that the uh, boundary constructions vary in particular ways that swing to your advantage, but that's really low for what most acousticians would consider a viable room. Um, you want to be past that. Um, so that's one thing is the dimensions of the room. You probably and have no control over that because you're stuck where you are. Is there any like quick like dirty calculations people can do to figure out what's going to be good or not. Yeah. There's, there's like websites that have uh, room mode calculators that crunch the numbers for you. There's two metrics you want to look at. What you do is you punch in uh, the dimensions of your room and it's going to tell you two things. It's going to show you where your room is on the bolt area, which is um, kind of an, um, uh, an amalgamation of known good room ratios for neutrality of uh, frequency response that, this really clever guy named Bolt put together from a few other people's, um, you know, lists of known good room dimensions. And then there's what's called the Benello um, criterion, which is how many modes occur in every third of an octave from 20 hertz up. What you want to look for there is a strictly increasing uh, degree of modes. So say in the first third, there's one mode. In the second third, you can have one mode. You'd like to have two modes. You definitely don't want zero modes. And the reason for that is modes aren't inherently a bad thing because they're, uh, they support, uh, they, they contribute the room gain to the sound system. They reinforce it. So as long as the distribution's good, they're your friends. Now, if there's a section of the frequency range where suddenly you have no modal support because it's missing a mode in that third, you're going to get a suck out mm -hmm. and you can't fix it with fiberglass because it's inherent to the physics of the room. It's not that there's a cancellation occurring. It's that there's no natural reinforcement happening. So I have a little tangent that I'd like to go on. Yeah, here. sure. Um, 
DSP acoustics like Sonarworks or Arc or mm-hmm. building your own filters in Room EQ Wizard or otherwise, um, how how much can they uh, add to fixing those suckouts? Okay, we're getting into really uh, uh, contentious territory here. I dig mm-hmm. it. Um, What's your initial response to oh, that? Oh, I'm all for it. I mean, You're I'm one it. of the biggest cheerleaders for DSP acoustics out there. Are you in the same boat? Are you? Um, Are we going to fight? <laughs> I'm. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, but I. But I. I think. Like we were before this, before we started this yeah. podcast, we were talking and we, and we warmed up on it. There was, yeah. And there was some, and my admission was that, that both paths seem reasonable, like changing the room, geometry, fixing the room, etc. Using, using DSP to change the response that is being provided into the room. And by DSP, we're talking basically about putting an EQ. EQing the monitor on, path. Yeah. Basically like in, in. If you put an EQ in on the master channel of your mm-hmm. Ableton session and boosted the areas of the room that were bad and reduced gain in the areas of the room, wait, reduced gain in the areas where there was too much of that. There's a buildup, yeah. yeah. So here's the really cool thing about EQing a monitor path that a lot of people who you know are against the concept I don't think have really educated themselves on fully. Um, a small room is an inherently minimum phase transfer function from the speaker to the listener. There is a, a, a phase shift that corresponds um, with the change in frequency uh, within that room. And modal activity is also a minimum phase um, phenomena. So that is to say that it shifts the frequency response and it has a corresponding shift in the phase response. So the really cool thing about EQing problems out of the room is you're using a minimum phase filter, which operates on the exact same conditions as the modal issue where there is a a phase change that corresponds to the frequency change. And if you set your um, bandwidth correctly with these things, you can not only address um, the the issue and the frequency response, but in doing so, you can also correct the phase response of the anomaly that's being caused by room modes. A lot of people like to say, oh, if you EQ um, you know, your speakers, you screw up the phase response of the room, and that's inherently untrue on its face by the sheer nature of how uh, room modes operate. They work on the exact same principles that minimum phase filters work off of. So they can be very helpful and they can be minimally detrimental. And in addition to that, um, you can address issues in your uh, waterfall plots as well to a certain degree to uh, the modal ringing. So what's a a waterfall plot? Okay, so we all know what a frequency response plot probably looks like, right? On your horizontal axis is frequency, on your vertical axis is amplitude. Waterfall plots take that concept and they add a third axis, a z-axis, which is time. And what that tells you is how long each frequency persists after the impulse is over. Um, So how long it rings out in the room. And that plot is how we track down room modes. It's one of the main ways that we identify them and separate them from being, say, boundary interference. Um, And generally, what will happen is if you have a modal buildup, you'll have an especially strong amplitude of modal ringing that corresponds with that. Well, if you pull the level down 
to fix that buildup in the frequency response, you also pull down the reverb tail like on the, the modal ring. time that that so, frequency so hangs yeah. for you. So if these things are properly employed, you're not only resolving the frequency domain, which is what everybody gets held up on, but you're also fixing, to a certain degree, the phase domain and the time domain. And I think it's a really elegant system. I, I admit that it is a Band-Aid. Um, there are... There are ways to not need them, but the fact of the matter is uh, when I got into this, it was to carve out a niche in the community that needed access to yeah, acousticians. You're not going into rooms where you can be like, oh, okay, I see the problem yeah. here is uh, the solution is to tear down that yeah, wall. Yeah, you just need to tear that wall down. Oh, yeah. don't worry. Your landlord will be cool with it. It's fine. You yeah. know, like I, I, I like to work on tricky cases. I think that's a really fun thing to do because it's like a puzzle. Now, I also do ground up designs now for people where I can design rooms that have perfect modal distributions to where it can be addressed with nothing but fiberglass. But there are certain dimensional ratios that you can get in rooms where you can't fix it with fiberglass. I mean, especially in smaller rooms, like you would have to fill damn near the whole air volume of the space to address the magnitude of these things. If you say have a height dimension that matches your width dimension, you are so screwed anywhere outside of either tearing walls down or bringing filters into play. And a pretty big component of the acoustics community says, well, shit luck, buddy. I guess you have to move, you know? And I, I think that like that really cuts out a big part of the electronic music community and that's my community. And I want to serve them and help them in any way I can and get them into environments where they can make the best, most educated decisions and come out with really great engineered even- work, you know? But even artists who probably do have the money to do these crazy ground up designs and stuff still employ you to do their rooms, such as Tipper. Oh, sure. Well, his wasn't his wasn't a uh, ground up build, although I did have him knock a wall down for me because he bought the house and it did help to a great degree. Um, but, you know, it, a lot of times it's a nice way to get that last two or three percent out of you know so i I think the main question that i get asked um when i say that i use filters on my room Mm -hmm. when anybody uh, anybody who like doesn't use filters on their room and is sort of like thinks dsp acoustics is a weird thing sure (laughs) is that like if there is a suck out in the room how is adding gain on a filter not just going to cause that black hole to just keep sucking it out more that's a really good question okay so there is one case where that that is true and you can't fix it. And that's boundary interference. I explained what uh, modal activity is comprised of. There's a secondary main phenomena that occurs in small room acoustics, and that is boundary interference. So you have a direct path from the speaker to your ears. There are also secondary paths, which involve one bounce off of a boundary that then arrive at your ears at, you know, uh, certain positions in the room. These are called first reflection points. Now, an interesting thing happens at first reflection points in small rooms is that there is a certain frequency at which its wavelength um, has a path to a wall bounces off of it, reaches you perfectly out of phase with the direct sound from the speaker. You get a complete cancellation null at that one very specific frequency. And I think that's what your people have been referring to in this. That is one edge case. And would that be 
when you say one particular frequency, are you talking about a small band of frequencies? Incredibly band, uh, incredibly you, narrow. So like a set very, of very, very like narrow, ten to twenty hertz. Not even, not even like wow, okay. one hertz bandwidth. I'm so it's talking. like pretty. Fucking yeah, and here's the thing: there, there's a phase shift that surrounds it, but it's not a full 180 degree phase shift that occurs. The only place where you get perfect cancellation is where it's bang on. That you're 180 degrees and out then of phase. Moving your head exactly. in any direction. If you move <laughs> to any degree, yeah. that corner frequency will move. So here's why this is kind of a red herring argument is as a matter of course, in every room that I do any form of consulting on, I do comprehensive first reflection point treatment. We work to attenuate those first reflection points to the best degree that we possibly can, either through the positioning of the speakers in proximity to the boundary to get that reflection frequency uh, above the baffle step to where it becomes sort of a non-issue or to dampening the wall in that particular position to a depth that's appropriate to capture that specific frequency. It's an issue that's easily rectified in most rooms. So this is kind of a red herring argument that people throw at it. Um, yes, you can't fix that. But here's the thing. It's on an incredibly narrow bandwidth. And in most rooms, it's something that you see on paper, but you never hear. And in fact, most studios, including northward designed rooms, which are some of the best in the world, they leave the floor bounce. They don't do any work to attenuate that floor bounce. They just leave it be because, again, it's a problem that you see, but you don't hear. Also, Go for it. Yeah. Well, also, yeah. Well, also that floor bounce is, is present in almost all of the listening environments mm-hmm. that you're making the mix for. Yep. I'm also um, interested in your counter to why you don't like DSP acoustics. Yeah, go for it. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, I, um, I wouldn't go so far to say I don't like DSP acoustics. I use DSP. Um, and I use e- EQ liberally. So, uh, like so in, in live sound, my man. like when you're so, running in like a live sound event or yeah. Okay. Like in any situation where it's appropriate, uh, which well, is that's the thing, right? It's like, well, sorry to cut you off, but no. like with live sound engineers, like literally you'll see them walking around with an iPad, like EQing the sound system. That's literally DSP That's acoustics. exactly it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Mm-hmm. When yeah, they think out the system yeah. in advance, they EQ as a result of what they get on okay. their readings. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so go on. Yeah. I'm interested. Well, so yeah, so I, I agree with Matt about processing and, and especially in the case of um, most home studio situations, that is the best path forward. It's it's immediate. You can do it. It eliminates problems and it improves your translation. So great. Um, the, when we start getting into highly finessed situations, um, I like to fix. If if I have more power to to control the dimensions that I'm working with, right. So essentially, you mean like situations with more money involved in them? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I first I want to if I'm okay we're not in disagreement at I, all we're I don't exactly so. in the same place here. yeah I, I, I believe I'm definitely I, still interested I, in knowing your view on it from a speaker, well I think speaker point of view well yeah, sure totally. well I think group delay it's interesting when you have in a, so in a waterfall plot when you have a ring out at a particular frequency and you start to carve that ring out with EQ to reduce it then what you're doing is you're saying I'll, I'll favor a flat frequency response in the room I'll, I'll favor that flat frequency response, but the the region that I've EQ'd, the uh, the the way that I've accomplished that flat frequency 
is is I'm relying on temporal hash at uh, from the resonance of the thing that I was correcting to be part of the representational response that I'm making my judgments based on. So it so by doing that, yes, it improves the translation of our mix into the next space, and it and it makes for a better mixing environment. But from a, uh, a fidelity and reproduction standpoint of of actually nailing the signal that was intended to be transferred, um, there's some temporal slop that is being basically relied on for those frequencies to hold. And so then when you're making a decision in those in that frequency range, if you're doing really precise uh, precise sculpting, like say designing a snare or something like that uh even further into like working in the stereo field because that's where that's where that where phase starts to really matter a lot it it the high it, frequency of a snare have stereo hmm? like the pss, the top of a snare has stereo sure oh yeah totally um you're talking more about localization though right that's yeah okay like a like a mixed down with like a full stereo field and stuff. yeah like maintaining stereo image mm-hmm. and your your front to back and yeah, placement. So, or going even further into higher order stuff where you're doing immersive environments, mm-hmm. then like twenty point sound systems and stuff. Yeah, then it's a really if you can correct the waterfall ring out issues in the room and the speaker system, then you can then you can achieve fields that represent space more accurately. Okay, and that also will preserve the if there's like really delicate sound design details uh, that rely on phase. Which a lot of recordings don't have that. Most people aren't working at that level, um, just because it's not it's it's fetishism often. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like, Audiophilia. Yeah. yeah. Most people are not yeah. even listening to material that is like that at all. But there are some people who want that who want that level of of playback and purity. performance and purity. And mm-hmm. so when you move, if you're working to accomplish that, then uh, then getting your waterfall and your ring out times uh, fixed at the source is going to be a, a more reasonable yeah, way I to go about it. I completely agree with you on that. So going back to um, uh, DSP stuff, sorry, did you? Yeah, yeah go for it. That, there's, that reminds me of yet another red herring that gets brought into the fray in arguments against DSP acoustics is the assertion that the the person who adopts this is going to say, oh, well, I don't need conventional acoustics. I'll just chuck sonar works on in my completely untreated room, and then that'll just sort everything out, and it'll be exactly the same as if I had addressed all of these modal issues with fiberglass. And I think that's a really myopic stance that a lot of these people take. I'm not it's, saying you. No. I, I get into no. arguments with people all day. No, about we agree. This that, stuff that just creates suffering yeah. for the person who's yeah. who's using the studio yeah. in that way because their mixes won't translate. Yeah. And and it's a tool in the toolkit. And depending on the room, it's a tool that has to come out. Sometimes I've had plenty of rooms where they were bang on. I didn't need to get filters into the equation after we'd addressed it with conventional acoustics. But sometimes. Things don't pan out in situ the way they do on paper. And at that point, you know, I'm already in Colorado or, you know, California or wherever. We can't call GIK and get more soffit traps. We can't, you know, build these things in the amount of time that I'm there. Well, what do you do? You know, like sometimes things just don't work out the way they are in theory. So it's a tool. 
that you know is at my disposal. Do I want to use it? No, I don't, because there is a compromise. There absolutely is. Um, but like realistically, you just have to if you want to get the job done. Everything so. is a compromise. Like we've been saying this whole time, everything is a compromise. And I think, I, I think that you know, if you have to choose, there's a hierarchy of, of significance, and if you have some heinous amount of modal ringing in some specific area that's going to color your decisions and make you do mixes that aren't going to translate well. Okay, so do we maintain our stereo imaging as pristinely as possible or do we make it such that the mixes will work outside of this room? You know, I try to be really pragmatic about these things because um, I'm kind of in the trenches with it because I work on all different types of rooms. I would rather not use filters it's certainly possible to not need them if you have the means to create a space that doesn't need them and you have the budget for the treatment to make it happen. Yeah, but I like to have an option for everybody. And for you know a solid chunk of my clientele, that is a necessary option in order to make their rooms tenable for them to work in with the budgets that they have. So um, being like empathetic to people listening to this, who are like, well, I maybe want to put filters on my room because I can't pull my walls down sure. and all that stuff. Um, what, what what would your opinion be of things like Sonarworks and Arc and these uh, sort of consumer level DSP acoustic systems versus building your own filters and doing your own measurements? And like, what would you suggest to people in that realm? I don't want to overtly besmirch any particular companies, but one of the things that really gives me pause in these automated systems which you've listed um is uh the lack of repeatability you can run several sweeps and analyses and filter generations in a lot of those options you've listed and get completely different results every time and that is a terrifying fucking precedent for <laughs> something like this especially when you don't have a third party to confirm with, which I think a lot of people who use these systems, they're not going back and checking it with a third-party analysis program to make sure they didn't create way more problems than they fixed. And I also think that a lot of um, the, the, the dissentiment towards DSP acoustics is born out of these lower-end offerings that I think the... Um, you know, the artificial intelligence aspect of just falls flat on its face because it doesn't know how to differentiate between issues you can resolve and issues you can't resolve. And it doesn't have a good means of prioritizing which ones to fix. And it also doesn't do a good job of matching between channels how much it addresses those problems. So you'll see things like your stereo image leaning in one direction or the other one speaker being louder than the other. And yeah, if that was my experience with DSP acoustics, I absolutely would ban it. No question. And I think a lot of people do that with, with Sonarworks because it has such big market visibility right now. That said, it also drives a lot of business to me because I think people get it. They mess around with it. They pretty quickly realize that it's not a perfect solution, but they see the promise that's there. And they just want a more nuanced ability to manipulate it. 
So what I would say to people who want to do this themselves is don't get one of these automated situations. There are such easy ways to do a rough and ready implementation of this sort of thing. You can create submixes in your DAW where you you know, put correction filters in the EQ of your choice. Um, you know, that's so just like pro Q three or something. Yeah, like sure. Whatever yeah. equilibrium, pick your poison and have it such that it only goes to the monitor path and not to the main output, which is rendered so that you don't render your mixes through the correction filters. So run it sort of at the system level, yeah. not inside your DAW. Absolutely. I mean, if you can, and if not, just do some fancy busing within your DAW to create two paths to output, one of which has the EQs and goes to the monitors, and the other one is your bounce path. Um you know, you, you need a calibration mic. You need to learn Room EQ Wizard. It's not rocket science. I mean, it's really easy to contaminate analyses early on, but there's a lot of resources out there. Um, you know, and I encourage people to mess around with it because I, I, I think there is a lot of potential for people that don't have a better option than to go that route. I mean, even if you do have you know, quite a bit of GIK in your room, there's still going to be issues that are beyond the scope of addressing with a 17 inch deep soffit trap. That's only going to get you suppression down to a certain frequency. And most of the most uh, awful modal activity usually happens south of that, you know, and your only route around that is to build deeper traps yourself, you know, which are integrated and comprehensive and very intrusive and probably not the sort of thing you want to do in your apartment yeah i have another question um this is also regarding people listening to the podcast mm -hmm. um so you said like you want a room that has like nice even dimensions right but a lot of people or not even dimensions but like <laughs> a good a good ratio of dimensions yeah, sure. first like that's a, a great starting point mm -hmm. um what would you say to people like me for instance who can't get into a room that's even a solid rectangle. Like for instance, we're in a lounge room, which is it's a lot knows? of count of how this week went, I guess they should call me. Right. Yeah. How is, <laughs> how is this, this, you know, what would you call this room shape? Uh, a shit show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a living room. It's an open floor plan living room by which I mean, there's an open stairwell that goes upstairs. There's an open path into the kitchen. It's not a sealed room. And once you get into a non sealed room and especially one that has non rectangular characteristics as this room does since it has something of a um like a nook in the front of it and then it opens up in the back half of the room you no longer have a rectangle and you no longer can model this in anywhere approaching a reliable fashion and this would probably be the case for like almost every venue as well right yep now the nice thing about venues is they're incredibly large so you get outside of the realm of uh, small room acoustics and into the uh, realm of large room acoustics and an interesting thing happens as the volume of a room increases is that the Schroeder frequency goes down now what the Schroeder frequency is is kind of the line of demarcation above which modal activity doesn't occur anymore. Um, it's where sound takes on more of a directional um, tendency. You can also impact Schroeder frequency with uh, Sabines of absorption. So 
you know, acoustic treatment will lower your Schroeder frequency, which has two main benefits. And treatment is measured in Sabines. Yeah, Sabines are a unit of absorption measured after a very clever acoustician. Um, so it, that's one of the reasons why we treat rooms as comprehensively as we can is because if there's less of a range that occupies the modal range, that's less frequencies that could be a potential problem in your life. And secondarily, you get more directional uh, sound into lower frequencies as you lower the Schroeder frequency, which is uh, beneficial. So um, suggestions to people who are in fucked up rooms? Oh, we were talking about big rooms. My point is like, uh, um, I'm about to do uh, sound in the caverns, which is this really cool venue that's in a cave. And uh, like the dimensions of their room, their Schroeder frequency is eight hertz. So modal, modal issues are, are much less of an issue in big venues than they are in small rooms. Right. I'm more or less talking about just oh. people who are listening who are in a room that's not a rectangle. Oh. Good luck. Get an analysis <laughs> mic. Start experimenting. Here's the thing. Apart from the dimensions of the room, the next biggest influence on how accurate your sound system is going to be is where your speakers are and where you are. You have a tremendous amount of um, latitude to manipulate the frequency response in your mix position by moving your speakers around and by moving your mix position around, um, which, you know, is where the 37.5% thing comes into play, but also the position of the speakers, um, say you run an analysis or you're just listening and the bass feels really light. There is a means to holistically address that. Uh, he was talking about horn loading of speakers and loading speakers into rooms is a direct counterpoint of that. Um, when you have a speaker in just the middle of the room, it's in free space, which is a fairly inefficient location to drive a speaker, drive a room with a speaker. As you move the speaker towards a boundary, uh, it goes into half space, which is um, more of a hemispheric projection as opposed to an omnidirectional projection for the bass frequencies. They're being redirected towards you from the front wall. So as you move the speakers towards the front wall, you get basically the equivalent of a low shelf uh, that uh, comes up in gain. And as you move away from the front wall, uh, that low shelf cuts instead. And the corner frequency of that is the baffle step frequency of uh, the speakers. Although I think it can be superseded by Schroeder frequency too. I think it's which, yeah, go for it. Well, this is why <laughs> You're you way see... better qualified for this than me. Well, I was just going to add to that, that this is why you see in a, a lot of studios soffit mount systems mm -hmm. that, uh, because it's just right against the wall. And you so should the, probably explain what soffit mounting means. Uh, so that's the speaker is actually enclosed in the wall and at the, at the front of the room. And so the uh, waves are not competing with themselves bouncing off of the wall the and then coming back bounce. out of phase. From what I understand, the speakers then see the entire front wall as the front of the speaker. That it is the baffle, yeah. Of the front baffle, now, yeah. some people may not like that result, it's a can um, of worms. Right. And so there's a reason not to do it, but it, there's also, depending on your situation... Yeah. It can become a very good option. Right. Because you essentially are removing a wall from the yeah. equation of acoustics. And there's a, there's a secondary benefit apart from removing the front wall bounce, as you've said, which is very important because the front wall bounce frequencies are usually very low and very difficult to attenuate. So by making it part of the wall, 
there is no front wall bounce. Secondarily, in a hard soffit configuration, um, when you embed the front baffle flush with this giant wall, you get a natural plus six dB of gain through the low frequencies, which I think begins at the baffle step corner frequency, right? So in doing so, you gain headroom in your low drivers. And when he says that um, speakers are really inefficient and generate a lot of distortion, that is especially true in the low drivers. They are by far the most distorted per capita drivers in a speaker because they have to move the most air. So by gaining 6 dB of free headroom, you lower your distortion figures um, for the space. Which helps a lot with mixing because yep. w- when you can, el- the upper harmonics that come from distortion trick you into thinking you have more bass than you do. And and so when you can eliminate the distortion that the speakers are producing and just have the actual material, the actual signal coming through, then you will apply the right amount of, of gain to the bass. But doesn't that then mean that everybody else who's listening on speakers that are distorting in that range will have more bass that old chestnut <laughs> and which is most people right yeah totally <laughs> well what what's our what's our alternative here should we master on iphones i mean you should reference some master on an iPhone. sure i but should we be making eq decisions on the iphone i mean here's the thing is like i'm sort of on the fence about whether or not I should be pandering my mix downs to people listening to music on an iPhone speaker versus... That's the spirit. Well, also versus (laughs) the fact that people are listening on an iPhone speaker. So it's kind of like, I don't know where I sit on that exactly. Well, again, it's a compromise. How good do you want it to be for the audiophile gang? How good do you want it to be for the iPhone crowd? Because you can't have both. Well, certainly the iPhone crowd are the ones who are going to pay your bills. Of course. Well, I mean, I really appreciate your music, though. Unfortunately, I don't think that's putting a lot of money in your pocket. (laughs) (laughs) How much do you feel that the compromise you have to make in in your work for it to translate? How much how, how how much do you feel that like negatively impacts your process and workflow when you're when you're doing sound design and composing? I think there's a middle ground for sure. Totally. Where, to where like you can listen to something in a studio, it sounds good. And you can listen to something live or on a big sound system or on a phone. Like, I, I think there is a middle ground there for sure. Do you find yourself when you're doing sound design, you know, making a particular type of movement or sound and, and you look at that and you say, oh, I, I love how this is sounding right now, but I know that this isn't going to translate. Hmm. Oh, hundred percent constantly oh, yeah. every step of the way. And, yeah, and I, sure. yeah, so a lot of times you're having to cut those and that, that changes where your track goes mm. in, yeah, in sure. a way. So I, so for me, I think falling upwards is a better solution than yeah. falling down. So I think this kind of podcast, like educating people about how they can improve their room acoustics, um, including listeners who, you know, are, I mean, I don't mean listeners of the podcast. I mean, people who are just listening to music. Right. The more people who are on good sound systems means the less we have to compromise for the people listening on bad sound Which systems. Which improves the entire ecology of the right. industry. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. For sure. And I think a lot of the confusion um, and the mystery in people who are just starting out in, you know, producing and engineering is driven by the the compromised acoustic spaces they're working in because you know if you're in an environment where your early reflections are controlled where your frequency response is neutral to where frequencies aren't being masked by their neighbor frequencies you have a tremendous amount more clarity in what you're hearing coming out of the speakers and it 
it really lets you make more educated guesses a lot more quickly. And I think it takes so much of the guesswork out of learning to do this stuff because you don't have all of these other variables in the equation. People say you can learn a room, but there's no getting mm-hmm. around uh, the law of physics with spectral masking. You can't learn your way around masking. And if you can hear issues in the mix, you have a a path to resolving them a lot more quickly. Whereas if you're in a compromised space, you kind of have to stab around in the dark doing stuff until something sticks, Mm -hmm. you know? I I think if people had access to better environments, I think they would learn to engineer better a lot more quickly. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Also, your enjoyment of the process goes way up because you're, because the, because when there isn't masking, the degree of, of finesse and detail yeah. that you can work at, it goes, it, it skyrockets. Well, it's also it, like, it exponentiates. yeah, it's a less frustrating process too. Mm-hmm. It's like walking on concrete versus walking on the sand. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, cool. So any, like we went through in terms of list of priorities for mm-hmm. a room, getting into a good room with good yep. uh, dimensions, good dimensions, right speaker and mixed position. Mm-hmm. And then I would say the, the next most important thing is, you know, the fiberglass crowd. And here's like the thing, treatment. Yeah. Here's the thing. You can make this incredibly complicated, but um, if you're starting from nothing, just fucking buy fiberglass, just get fiberglass. Like there's better densities with more optimal gas flow resistivities for different depths and whatnot. But some fiberglass is a hell of a lot better than no fiberglass. So where would you buy fiberglass from? Home Depot or Lowe's or whichever big box store. So just go in there and ask for fiberglass. My favorite fiberglass in the world is the three and a half inch stuff that they put between studs in walls. I use that stuff for so many different applications in my acoustic design and it's dirt cheap. It's so incredibly cheap. It's not the easiest thing to, you know, put into a trap because it's not rigid like OC703 or Ecos, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper and you can go a lot deeper with the traps, which lets you trap deeper bass frequencies, which odds are, are the ones that you really need to be working on in your room. So just start getting fiberglass, man. Like, Is it, uh, would it be almost correct? This is what I always tell people and it might be bullshit. Hmm. Um, but is it almost correct to say that acoustics is a game of density? And if you just put enough density in a room, you're fighting the pressure off the physical thing that's that you're mm-hmm. fighting against. Okay. So let's talk about gas flow resistivity for a minute. Um, Basically, the way that fiberglass operates on sound and attenuates modal activity is it slows it down and it uh, transduces some of the energy into heat um, in doing so. And that removes some of the energy from the frequencies that bounce off of the wall, right? So the name of the game is to get the sound to go as far into that material as possible and get the whole weight of the wall before it bounces often comes back through because it'll go through more depth of material and it'll have more time to dissipate as heat. So you get more efficient absorption in doing so. You need to match the density of your fiberglass to the depth uh, that you're intending to uh, go with the trapping. 
with shallow traps, like, you know, the things you get from GIK, the rectangular guys, they use um, Ecos, I think uh, three pound per cubic foot for the wall traps and 1.5 for the tri traps. And I swear I didn't uh, reverse engineer their products. They just fall apart on me sometimes. And I'm kind of curious. But anyway, uh, so with shallow traps like that, you can use rigid fiberglass that's more dense because it, the sound doesn't have to go as far through it. And it's more efficient at those depths than if you used le- less dense fiberglass. Now, if you're trying to trap bass, you have to get depth going. The deeper, the better, because the deeper the trap is, the the more quarter wave theory is going to work to your advantage. So if someone can do it, Mm-hmm. What they would really want to do is essentially build like four or five feet of fiberglass trapping yeah. on their entire back wall. Lowest density you can get, attic insulation, the pink stuff. Again, it's dirt cheap. Is it bad for your health, Sesta? Nah. Okay. <laughs> no, <I don't laughs> they, they, <laughs> they haven't had formaldehyde in fiberglass in like 20 years. You're fine. Okay. It's cool. Just... um. I guess wear a respirator or whatever when you're working on it. I think that's for hippies, but I'm probably going to die young as a result of it. <laughs> you should probably wear gloves if you don't want to get itchy, long sleeves, maybe a mask and goggles. So do you just build... Because it is nasty stuff. So you, in your room, for instance, did you just build like a fat frame at the back of the room and just jam it full of fiberglass and then cover it in a black cloth? Basically? So I have something of an odd uh, implementation in my studio. I do have two feet of trapping in the back of the room, which is low density, pink, fluffy stuff. But in the front of my room, I have uh, a soft flush implementation, kind of like what he was talking about with the soffit mounting, except it's not a rigid boundary. It's a fabric facing behind which I have four feet of wave-guided bass traps, which surround the speakers uh, so that you know you can get more depth of trapping so than you, have, you could otherwise. So you count the depth of trapping on both the front and the back wall, and you add those two depths together? Um, eh, for what purpose? So you said you have two feet on the back wall, four feet on the front wall, so you have six feet of... Well, here's the thing is waveguides create the illusion that there is more depth than there actually is. What a waveguide is um, in the acoustic sense is different than in the uh, loudspeaker design sense. What I'm talking about is these giant sheets of MDF, um, which are set at specific angles. Uh, Usually they point towards the corners of the room and they angle progressively further in as you go in from the corners. It was a concept that was originally designed by uh, Tom Hidley back in the day. And it used um, hanging sheets of... uh, this pulp board, I think, with fiberglass. Um, It's been refined into something that can fit a smaller form factor for modern studios by John Brandt, which uses MDF and they're fixed. They aren't hanging. Um, And that's the, the design which I used at my place. Now, what happens is base goes into this trap. It goes through a certain amount of fiberglass at the face of it, and then it goes into an air cavity And then it hits fiberglass that's on this waveguide. The waveguides are surrounded by uh, R13 fiberglass, three and a half inch. And it goes through the fiberglass, bounces off the boundary, goes back through the fiberglass, goes into the air, goes into fiberglass, bounces off the next waveguide, 
goes back through the fiberglass, through the air, on and on and on and on until it hits the front wall. And then because of the angling of the waveguides, uh, it traps the base back there. It makes it have to bang around a little while before it finds a path to get back out. And when it does, it has to do the same thing all over again, going through um, iterative layers of air, fiberglass, hitting a boundary, fiberglass, air. And what that does is it allows you to trap to a much deeper depth than you could get away with if it was just solid attic insulation for four feet. Because you only get 18 inches with even the lowest density fiberglass before it becomes reflective and the sound bounces back out early. Through using these waveguides, you've created the impression to the sound that it is a massively deep trap. And it's the greatest thing that I've ever done for my studio by a very wide margin. Um, I, I've set myself up to, to kind of, I, I steal myself against disappointment when I do, uh, uh, revisions on the acoustics at my place, because usually you have high in the sky expectations that, oh, this is going to be the ticket. This is going <laughs> to fix all my worldly problems. And then, you know, you spend the time, you do it, you get itchy, you run the measurements and you get disappointed. Not with this. The results with this were transformative. Um, well, but, also the fact that you installed $60,000 speakers as well at the same time as doing this, right? Hey, I've heard my $50,000 speakers in other people's rooms sounding just awful. <laughs> <laughs> you really have to do them justice to get the best out of them because they, they work to a very high potential and the room has to also be up to that potential. Um, which is why I lose so much sleep trying to optimize my room because I just want to do them justice. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, we've talked for a hundred minutes. Do you Tight. have anything you guys both want to add to this conversation before we end it? Oh, uh, well, I would, I'd like to ask Matt about uh, the use of Helmholtz resonators. Oh, yeah, and and also, so that's one, uh, like mm -hmm. when, when would you want to use those in room mm -hmm. acoustics? And another question I'd like to pose is, um multiple subs versus one sub is that oh, yeah okay. like that seems like a tasty territory I for love you both of those questions we can definitely get into them okay well first of all if you're talking about helmholtz resonators you should explain what they are okay um so a helmholtz resonator let's just strip it back to resonators as a general concept okay um because there's a whole family of them that are you know uh, uh permutations upon each other slightly different implementations what they do is they have a cavity that is tuned to a certain frequency which is dampened by fiberglass it has a membrane on the face of it which when sound at that frequency hits it it rings and that ringing goes into the cavity, which is then dampened by the fiberglass. So it gives you the means to um, target specific frequencies. Whereas with what I've talked about so far, it's a broadband solution where it just kind of attacks any frequency that is, um, you know, within compliance of its quarter wave capabilities for absorption. Uh, resonators are a really great way to target specific modal frequencies, most notably very low modal frequencies. So like say you had a big anomaly at 50 hertz, you could Let's suck it Let's take up. my room, for instance. The, the fundamental mode, uh, length mode of my room is 27 hertz. This is an incredibly low frequency with a very long wavelength, which requires an insane amount of trapping depth to handle it with uh, standard velocity traps. 
Well, resonators are the other family of traps. They are um, uh, they're tuned traps, which operate off a totally different principle. Um, and what they allow you to do is have specificity to that specific frequency. Whereas with a gigantic trap that you would need to absorb 27 Hertz, well, you're going to absorb everything else. And odds are you're going to wind up with a really dead room as a result of that. Right. So the alternative is these tuned options and they specifically go after a given frequency and its overtone series. And the beauty part of that is if you get the tuning just right for the fundamental mode um, in a given dimension, it attenuates the entire overtone series of modes as well. And the tuning of this would be the length of the thing? Um, It is... It depends on the type of resonator. Some of them uh, use a membrane and the uh, the density of the material, which can uh, creates the membrane, uh, will tune it. Other ones depend on the depth of the cavity. Um, there's a whole subset of these things that work in slightly different ways and have different advantages and disadvantages. Um, but the core concept is that they you know, use a tuned cavity that's dampened to reson, uh, to attenuate specific frequencies. Um, I would pull one of those out first of all, rarely because, um, resonators are kind of volatile. They're dependent on, on temperature. They're dependent on humidity, uh, variations in these things, um, can shift the corner frequencies and make them completely useless just make have no impact on the room and they're generally quite large and a little bit involved to build so it's um you know kind of heartbreaking when you build one and it's tuned improperly at the end of it and is there no way to make them tunable you can retune them after the fact but it's a touchy process especially if you're you know um giving plans to a client who's building them themselves uh i try to handle problems in rooms without that other than in special cases. One of those special cases is when there's a particularly low uh, fundamental frequency where it becomes impractical to you know, uh, trap that frequency effectively. In my room, I managed to handle it with porous absorption, with velocity traps, but most people don't want to give away six feet of their room as dimensions to handle that, right? So... A sane person would have used a resonator on the rear wall uh, tuned to 27 hertz to handle that fundamental mode. Um, so, yeah, it's it's something I try to not pull out because, again, when I fly out to do these things, no analysis has been done before I get there. I advise the clients on what to buy, what to build, and they install it before I get there. And I get there and I don't like surprises. And the nice thing about broadband absorbers is they're pretty reliable. As long as you have the sufficient depth to handle the frequencies, they do their job. With tuned traps, it gets a little hairier because of the potential for design and implementation flaws. Um, you know, if the cavity is leaky, um, there's all sorts of factors that can screw it up. So I try not to reach for those unless I have a very specific reason to do that kind of. Yeah. So the, the, first the next question. question yeah. Subs. About, yeah. Multi- multiple subs or Love single it. sub. Like- yeah. So first of all, multiple subs. Um, 
I'm a little biased because I'm a mastering engineer and we really don't do anything other than dual subs or full range monitors that don't need them. Um, there are a few specific benefits to using multiple subs. The main one is breakup of modal activity. When you have one point source that's representing an entire frequency range, it is very much going to be at the mercy of its placement in the room. But if you have two point sources which represent the same range and are carrying you know, the same signal or close to the same signal, as is usually the case with uh, content that gets driven to subwoofers, you have two points uh, from which sound is emanating and they drive the modes of the of the room differently from each other and they soften the modes in doing so. They'll remove some of the anomalies which would be present if there was only one there. And also, my room is so comprehensively treated that if I put a sub in there, I could hear where the bass is coming from because my Schroeder frequency has been dropped so sure. low. So sure. it would just, just annoy the hell out of me if sure, I Sure, but I'm thinking about producer people who oh, don't totally. have treatment. I mean, just for practical purposes, in order to soften your room modes, that's one of the best ways to do it is having two subs. You don't have to get into each. What about having four? Totally. And could you Sure. I mean, that opens a can of worms. Could you reiterate? Sure, it does. it does. It yeah, does. But totally. It it will help your cause in terms of frequency response. I'm, I'm trying to understand why having more subs softens your room modes. Well, <laughs> they're geometrical functions. Well, think based about on it. Based- if, you, if you stand in one position, you take a measurement, you're going to get a specific frequency response, right? If you move the mic somewhere else, you're going to get a different frequency response, right? If you average out every position in the room you get a flat frequency response. Okay, interesting. Just like if you average every horrible room in the world, you get a neutral room, which is why mastering rooms are designed to be neutral because we're supposed to represent the center of gravity for the listener experience in terms of frequency response. So if you have multiple point sources, it's the same thing as being in multiple places at the same time in the frequency domain in that you have multiple... Uh, points of reference which are compensating for each other's deficiencies from modal um, anomalies. Does and I'm assuming, sense? yeah, it does. And I'm assuming the reason that this doesn't extend to mid-range or high-range speakers, such as like you know, uh, well, say, first of all, mixes. because they're outside of the modal range, they don't suffer from the same problems that bass frequencies do. Um, most of the issues that they suffer from is boundary interference, uh, sidewall bounce desk bounce most notably that's what'll screw up anything above your schroeder frequency if you see anomalies above that it's one of two things it's either a loudspeaker defect or boundary interference there's nothing else that really will cause that in a room so that's the reason why it's only important for subs yeah would it also be because uh sub is just not quite as directional as well totally yeah absolutely now Here's the caveat is you have to time align these things because if they're out of phase with each other, you're going to create way more harm than good, especially if they're out of phase with the mains. They need to have the same time of arrival in the mix position. Otherwise, it breaks the illusion that it's one sound source. It's like, okay, here's a sound source and then here's a secondary sound source. And I think a lot of people with subs are suffering through that because it's incredibly difficult to properly voice and align a subwoofer in the frequency and time domain for a room properly. Um, So it, when you get into the realm of, you know, four subs, eight subs, when you start going crazy with it, you have to get delay lines 
in the equation. And you may have to invert the phase of some of the subs depending on where they're coming from in relation to other subs in the room. So it's a whole big can of worms, but in terms of the frequency domain, it's a net positive every time. And what is the process for aligning subs with mains or aligning subs with other subs? Okay. So there's a couple components to it. The first one is the the frequency response. It needs to be at the same level as the mains at the crossover point. You don't want the sub to be louder than the mains. Otherwise, it's not going to be neutral, obviously. The secondary issue is the time of arrival from that speaker to you needs to be the same as the main speaker's time of arrival to you. And you can measure this... um, in a few ways. The best way to do it is take impulse responses of the mains and then the subs separate from each other. Calculate the time of arrival difference. You'll have to use like a a digital loop back in order to compensate for the time of flight through your you know, uh, electronics and your, your computer system to compensate for that. But it's, it's a trivial part of the process. And then what you do is you create a delay line that makes it so that the impulse responses arrive at the exact same time. So it literally like uh, will either make your sub playback or your mains playback mm-hmm. playback a few milliseconds mm-hmm. later or earlier. Usually you're slowing the mains down right. to, to be, I mean, it depends on the, the difference in distance, but if they're at the same distance, um, Generally. the nature of crossovers and so on and so forth usually puts uh, the subs behind the mains. So you wind up did I get that backwards? No, like, that sounded correct. Okay, me. cool. <laughs> Didn't doubt myself for a second. <laughs> um, so yeah, you have to put a delay line on the mains in order to time align them with the subs. And it's really crucial. And it really transforms the experience from being like this stupid thing that you only punch in occasionally to see what's going on down there to it being a fundamental core component of your listening system. I think subs get a really bad rap because of how hard they are to get to play nice in a room totally but you know and i mean i myself i use full range speakers that are linear to 20 hertz so i don't have to deal with it but you can do really well with satellite subwoofers on you know a sound system that doesn't extend uh the full way down to the bottom octave if they're working in congress with each other in the room it's just a little bit of a process that extends beyond listening to music and tweaking the levels of the sub versus the mains to get it sounding right you know okay well (laughs) i think uh this will explode most people's heads (laughs) Uh, what might be a good way to end is just tell people how to get in contact with you guys if you're comfortable with that and people have questions about things and i mean specifically in your case you're a mastering engineer and acoustician and i'm assuming you do live sound and you why would people <laughs> price. Generally, why do people generally get in contact with you uh my group has been in stealth for seven years mm-hmm. doing speaker tech design mm-hmm. and we hold a bunch of patents and we understand uh speakers pretty much as well as anyone um around so i'm not really sure um I'm not really sure why somebody would want to get in touch with us unless it was a very technical question. Maybe um, somebody just had some question I'm, that wasn't answered in the podcast that we skimmed over or something. Oh. Yeah, what, what would be the best way for them to do that? So, yeah, they, they could email me. Um, they could just send something to info at mobiusacoustics.com. Just reference podcast in the subject line. Cool. And I'll catch all those. So Perfect. I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy to field questions. Um, 
look forward to hearing from someone awesome and if anyone wants to hire you as an acoustician or a mastering engineer it's real easy haciendamastering.com just use the contact form or hit me up on facebook it's matt davis i'm pretty easy to find on there there's a picture of you sitting in front of uh 50 fuck off speakers yeah (laughs) (laughs) can't miss me cool all right well thanks both for coming on thanks for having having us appreciate it Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.